we are going to shift again and have this next period be a time for discussion or question together between the two of us with you. So are there any things that we've talked about tonight that you guys would like to sort of explore? Things to add, questions to ask. Yeah, thanks. I was wondering if you could share your perspective or view of conflict in Buddhist uh, traditions. Um, I think I'm getting this understanding. I think, I think of Buddhism, I think of the practice of kindness and compassion and generosity. It kind of seems to go against conflict. So, But when I mean, conflict arises, um, I think I have a tendency to make it easier or, or push it away or... So I'm just wondering what kind of view or perspective you've given how a good approach or a good view for conflict and dealing with conflict with others. Should I be too? Sure. Yeah. In the monastery, for many years, there was this kind of modus operandi, you know, shut up and just watch your mind. So if there was any difficulties that arose, shut up and watch your mind was like kind of like the bedrock. That we had this idea that everything could be resolved internally by ourselves in our own meditation practice on our own cushion. And after living with each other for I don't know how many years, we came to the realization that this was an inadequate modus operandi. That there are all kinds of things that need to be resolved in relationship and through discussion. Now, people have different views of things. They see things differently. And it's simplistic to assume that there's a right way and a wrong way of seeing things in many situations. And so what was needed was to develop the skill to be able to hear each other and to allow for the differences of views that people had and to find a way to respond in a way that met most people's or everybody's needs. Okay? This was not a small learning. This was enormous to learn to do this. And part of what was needed was to learn to move into conflict with a different view rather than conflict was something to avoid or to get rid of. Conflict was often arising because people were not listening to each other and they hadn't allowed for the diversity of views to be present and come up with a workable solution that would include and uh, respond to that. So it is simplistic to think that because there's kindness and compassion and letting go as a value, then there's no conflict. And that because there's kindness and compassion and letting go as a value, that's all that is needed in order to resolve conflict. And so we were, as a community, a community for 20 years before we began to pick this up as a whole practice arena in and of itself that needed its own language, its own skill set, its own way of responding. And the more we did that, the more safety there was in the community, the more we could trust, the more we could allow the safety of the community to support us to go deep in our practice. And so you're actually bringing up a really important point 
that we have this idea that if you practice, it means that you don't disagree with people. But it's actually, you know when it's really important to disagree, and you know when it's okay to let go of your opinion, that it's not that important. Maybe I'll add a comment to that. In the early Buddhist texts, you hear the Buddha talking frequently about conflicts of opinion and the jungles of views, which in the early tradition is a word called ditti in Pali or in Sanskrit, drishti, related to the word darshan, which means to see. It means view, but in his vocabulary, it really means a tightly held opinion that one holds on to strongly, you know, whether it be political or about how the family should run or how the business should run. And he emphasized strongly the nature of people's dogmatic tendency to hold on to views and how much trouble it causes in relationships and families and communities internationally. Right? He really saw it as a deep source of suffering. So it is the case that conflict is seen as a source of pain. But just like the other sources of pain we've been talking about here, that doesn't mean it needs to be avoided conflict. It needs to be investigated and explored. And when Amma talked about the importance of opening up views and sharing them, I mean, that's really the starting point, I think. Right? And she wasn't suggesting that's the end. But, you know, when you're in a conflict with someone, whether it's marital or business or neighbors or something, you each have a different view about how a fence should be laid or how we should handle money or what are the goals for the company. And what's really important there, I feel, is to be able to ask the other person, so, you know, what is it that you think and, and why? And if you think there's some irrationality there or something, you can ask a few questions and see if you can get their reasoning cleared. And then you have to present what is your view and why. And sometimes in presenting your view, you can see that you're stuck in some place you shouldn't be. And sometimes things get ironed out just in initial conversations, right? But sometimes not. But if you're in a relationship then where you maintain different views, but you still have to get something accomplished, then you have to talk about, well, then how are we going to accomplish what it is that we're here to do? Yeah. I know in the example I used before of my, my former marriage, which had many difficult years before it ended, um, when I finally was able to say, well, what is it that you need? And when I was able to articulate what it was I needed, and when we were really able to see that our needs could not be met together, then we could come to an agreement that was mostly agreeable, uh, that we couldn't be together anymore because our needs couldn't be fulfilled together. Do, do you know what I mean? So, I mean, resolving conflict is an important aspect of the Buddhist path, but not ignoring it or neglecting it or running away from it. It's actually part of the practice, right? And just as another note, you know, the monastic discipline has a bunch of rules, and there's all kinds of instructions about, you know, different things. And the largest number of rules is around right speech, and the greatest number of instructions is how to deal with conflict and feedback and receiving feedback and all the rest of that. It's like three times as much as in any other area. So, you know, for the even at the time of the Buddha, and even for the monks and the nuns who were living in community 2,600 years ago, same. Same. Is there a technical word you're familiar with in Chinese? Wajowosoka. It means the harmonious sangha. Yes. What, do you know the Pali? Um, I've, I've never looked into that. There is a Pali word, and that escapes me right now. But it's it's a it's it's a term that appears again and again and again, and it's not a description of the perfect ideal so much as what we're working on all the time yeah. is trying to create harmony. Yeah. Right. That that's integral to the 
intention of the sangha, right? Yeah, there's a word for it uh, yeah. that has to do with the harmonious sangha. Okay, yeah. Did you have a response, or was that, was that enough for now? Yeah, um, it definitely uh, sings into perspective. I think for me personally, it's kind of, a, kind of going, it's first of all, is you know, the practice of getting in touch with what I need and want. Uh, so then that maybe that conflict can arise. I think for so long we just you know, suppress that to make it easy uh, to create peace, but that's creating harm for me. So, <laughs> the practice. Yeah, so there's digging to find out, you know, what, what are your own needs right. and learning to express them, but then also sometimes in conjunction with the other, learning to critique the basis of your own needs. Sometimes your needs are overly selfish, right? Sometimes they're really productive of disharmony, and sometimes we need to work on that, right? You know, so like uh, Ajahn Amma was saying, you know, we, we often think that even if we can identify what our own needs are, that they're right. And once the other person has identified his or her needs, that we can identify them as wrong. But that doesn't resolve conflicts. That just crystallizes it, right? But that's not easy to figure out to, to bring a critical attention into your own. No, and especially when you come from a culture or a context where you're not allowed to have needs. So right. I remember, you know, as nuns, as nuns, we're not allowed to have needs. You know, that was our, our sense of our own vocation. We're supposed to be kind and serving and energetic and compassionate and wise for everybody on the planet, but we're not allowed to have needs. So when somebody first suggested that we needed to have needs, I remember watching the faces of some of the nuns. It was like, what is a need? You know, like, what is that? You know, how do you locate that? Well, this is not unique to monastics and to nuns. There's all kinds of family systems and circles, social situations where people survive them by not having needs. And so then, you know, what what happens is, is that in order to grow up, we have to see that though that training and conditioning served at a useful point, it's not useful now that it's really helpful to be able to locate and understand what our needs are. And and then to speak from them, not to use them to bully, but to to just to know what they are. And to be able to separate them from what you want. Right. Yeah. That's not easy at all. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. It's the, the critical perspective I was referring to is more to wants than needs, but because we confuse the two, right. yeah, that's where the criticism has to come in. Could you elucidate on, on what your needs were? Because that might resonate with what we also need. I, I need for autonomy, for honesty, for safety, for a sense of belonging, a sense of I needed to be... Uh, I mean, there were many things that I needed, you know? I needed food that nourished my body. I needed adequate shelter. I needed a certain amount of warmth. I needed um, to play. I needed to uh, exercise. Yeah, those all seem to be universal, that everyone would need those. Yeah. Although some of the ones she mentioned, I think, ought to be commonsensical in a spiritual community, and yet they're not. I mean, the, the, the Buddhist traditions are, even monastic ones, filled with human beings, and they have problems and issues. And sadly, there's often in Buddhist communities a male chauvinism that, that dominates, and the nuns are often second class. And so there were certain needs that weren't met there. There are 
well, they may be universal. They were also unique to that particular context. Right. Yeah. But like as monastics, it took us a long time for us to realize that play was actually something that we needed. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be serious all the time. You know, we're supposed to be committed and dedicated and serious all the time. But when we figured out that we needed to play, and we did, you know, everything was like, oh man, it was just so much easier. You know? Play and joy seemed to be synonymous in a way. Yeah. You know, we'd have these marathon meetings that would go on, I don't know, 8 or 10 or 12 hours, and we'd have breaks. And we'd play, and then we would be we would be okay. But if we if we didn't play, they were just deadly. <laughs> was that difficult at, at, at first? Or was it what to get used to play, playing, taking a break from the focus? You have to learn how to play, right? Yeah, because you know I remember that we felt ashamed. We felt like we weren't supposed to play. It was the bad thing. So it took yeah. a long time for us to shift our view that play was the good thing, not the bad thing. Yeah? Yeah. I, I would think, you know, for those of us who grew up in homes where we didn't have names and watch, whatever, it's kind of a guilt that goes with, a guilty feeling with right. expressing. Yeah. In, in the first place. I need that. You know, it's all what you need. Right. Someone else needs. What can I do? Yeah. What can I give? Right. And um, yeah. what do I need to take? Right. And feel feel okay. That's okay. That's that's the way. It right. But what we learned in the community, particularly a community of renunciant monastic celibate women, was is that if we didn't take care of ourselves. We were useless to take care of other people. Absolutely useless. And so we learned that we had to take care of ourselves. Now, I remember some sisters where it was like, you know, I had to wrestle them to the ground. I mean, it was like not an easy thing for them to take care of themselves. You know, the whole community had to wrestle them to the ground because it was like, you know, their whole focus was on everybody else. But, you know, it was like, that's not okay. You've got to take care of yourself. It is hard. I mean, when one sister, the community ganged up on her for 15 years, and it was still a wrestling match for her to take care of herself. I mean, it was really hard. But eventually, slowly, 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 it was a little bit easier for her. You know, so this is where, like, the bodhicitta ideal and the kind of wisdom about the reality ideal also is in dynamic tension, whereas the bodhicitta, we feel that, you know, we are there to serve everybody, all living beings, and we're supposed to put aside all our enlightenment until everybody else is awakened. And the reality is, is that in order to do that, we need to be fed and nourished and healthy and strong and grounded and free. You know? Mm-hmm. And so if we're not, we have very little that we can give. You know, this last year and a half, I've been really sick. Really sick. And I've had very little that I've been able to give, you know? And it's been really hard for me to hang out with people because I've had all these chemical sensitivities and all the rest of that. When I'm well, I can do that. It's not an issue. You know, so I had to focus on getting better. It had to be a priority because otherwise I had very little that I could offer. And gratefully, I'm better. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So it seemed like if if we had all our needs met that we wouldn't have these fears and anxieties that we're avoiding. Does that make sense to you? You started out the, 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 
discussion about how there's fears and anxieties or, or certain traumas that, that we do not face and then we expect the magic wand to, to make those all go away. But it also seems like if our needs are fulfilled, those, those scary things we don't want to face would, would go away at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't work that way. Because the way that we are conditioned to experience fear is not based on our needs being met or not being met. Like, you know, um, I never grew up in a family where um, I didn't have enough to eat, you know. And yet, the fear that I've experienced about not having enough to eat was not related to my conditioning. It was another fear that was there from another... It was not related to my direct experience. Okay? So, as when we take ourselves to be a separate person, that sets us up to be incredibly vulnerable. And there's all kinds of things that we will fear. Fear of illness, fear of failure, fear of shame, fear of dealing with things that are overwhelming, fear of being out of control. There's all kinds of things that we are going to experience. So it's not just through getting our needs met, it's through understanding that the fears arise because of locating ourselves as a separate individual where we think that we are in control of our world. And this is an illusion. It's not the reality. So part of releasing the grip of fear is to get with the reality. That we're not in control, we never have been, the sense of separation is an illusion that is created through our perceptual feet. It's not the reality of the way it is. Yes, I, I, I understand that we're, we're just a part of a whole and we're all interconnected and that everything in one way or another affects everything else and we have virtually no control over that. But we have to accept that. Yes, yeah. But certainly getting our needs met as part of navigating our fears is definitely there. Because there's all kinds of weird things that happen when our needs are not getting met. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it exacerbates everything. That's right, and it's really hard to figure out what's actually going on. Yes? I have a two-part question. One is who in the monastic community defines the distinction between needs and wants? And secondly, how does that correlate with individuals in terms of that definition? Brilliant questions. Each community would sort those things out in different ways, but usually a community would have a standard of what they were adhering to, uh, an agreed standard, and that agreed standard would then be ideally meant to um, support most needs of the individuals being met. Uh, with some capacity for individual needs that weren't being met by the group standard to be negotiated. So it usually has to do with the, the leadership of the community, and with each community it'll be a little bit different, you know, how they navigate that. But there's like usually like a kind of a culture that's set up, and so people can either see that it works for them or it doesn't work for them, but the idea when people come into this culture is, is that they're not changing the culture that it's there, that they sort of fit into. Now, every one of us has an impact on the culture. 
and it does change. The culture does change. But we would we learned after a while to be discerning about who we would let come in and to see that they were there long enough that they could see that it actually fit well enough for them or that they could navigate this dilemma of were enough of their needs being met that it was actually workable for them. Would you mind sharing what brought you to the monastic life and then talk a little bit about the journey that you've had over the past 20 years? In two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Two minute version. Maybe three I can give you. I come from Jewish ancestry, 100%. Not anybody that I know was not Jewish. So a Buddhist nun is like an absolute pink-striped zebra. We don't have monastics. We don't have a contemplative... I mean, it's just like totally out of left field. I think, for me, what really touched me was the teachings really showed me that there was an end to suffering. And the retreat experiences that I had verified that. And so I could see that even though relationships were had elements that were very nourishing, it wasn't lasting. And the kind of happiness that comes from these deep insights, for me, felt like it was possibly more stable. Okay, So for me, there was a deep sense of the faith in the Buddha's teachings that if there was the opportunity to go forth and the inclination that it was a very powerful way of practicing. And go forth means to be a monastic. To be a monastic, yeah. Now, and I have found that to be true, though I don't think that this is an ideal life for most people. It's actually quite, there's few people for whom this is actually a good life. So I don't, you know, it's not that often that I really strongly encourage people to investigate or explore um, a monastic life. In terms of my own experience of it over the years, it has been incredibly powerful. And part of that power is is that it it has enabled me to be confident, to know what my own truth is, to learn how to live in relationship, and to do what was one of the most challenging things that I ever did, which was to leave everything that I knew behind to stand on my own convictions. And the only way that I could have done that was because I saw the proof of the practice in myself, and I had faith that living this life was possible. So it has been filled with tremendous opportunities and some unbelievable challenges. So what David alluded to in like uh, like a kind of like minor note about some prejudice against the women is like you know we could expand that into like a six-hour kind of series, you know about what that looked like and the experience of it and how it affected us and how we navigated through it. You know. But what never shifted was, for me, the confidence in the practice. And so, you know, that's why I came back to the States. And that's why I came back by myself. And that's why I'm living as a hermit without any other monastics around me because of navigating all these changes and wanting to find a, a way that actually feels really healthy rather than just slot into a something that's happening that is maybe so happy. So. Maybe those final words are a really good transition to our ending. Great. Yeah? Yeah. Before we leave, I'll make a final comment about um, monasticism. But before that, just a short comment about where we'll go from here. We haven't completely outlined exactly what we'll say in the next two sessions because we're going to meet again to talk about what we would like to do next. But we have some ideas... 
But we are going to delve into some issues related to traumas. Um, Alma in particular has a lot of experience uh, on various levels working with traumas and especially kinds of uh, traumatic experiences that Westerners seem to bring into their lives, experience in their lives and bring to their practice, and that certain traditional Buddhist methodologies are not quite adequately equipped to address. Um, and I have some ideas about that too, but she's much more experienced. And those are some things we want to talk about. And then we also want to talk about just ways in which the Buddhist tradition and Westerners don't fit perfectly, and ways in which Westerners, as we talked about a little bit today, can rethink practice. Sometimes we have lots of idealization and prejudices, you know, whether negative or positive, operating, and how these can infiltrate into our practice and create problems that don't really need to be there because of our misconception of Buddhism, and of, as well, ways in which we as human beings, as we discussed earlier, are different social, cultural creatures from many of the traditional pre-modern Asians who brought this tradition to us. And so there are ways in which we need to navigate differences in culture um, based on that. And so those are some things we'll bring up, I'm sure, next class. Uh, and one of the topics will be traumas. And then that's next Thursday, and then the final class is on Friday. I mean, on Saturday following that, the 25th, which will be a Saturday morning workshop where we'll pull out from these two first two classes a couple of elements that we think are most useful for the group to work on and in uh, less lecture mode and more um, workshop, meditation, discussion, back and forth mode, we'll give some opportunity to work more deeply on some of these matters. Did you have any words to say about no. that? Okay. Then lastly, then, just a little bit about dana and nuns. As Amma said, she's a hermit. She lives in a small little house uh, in Manitou Springs. It's really a hut. Uh, that was very kindly donated to her by a man who lives in Manitou Springs. Not quite. We pay rent. Are you paying rent now? Oh, yes, we always have. It oh, just was really ministerial. Oh, just really cheap. Yeah. Okay. And you also donated materials to renovate it, although friends had to bring in labor. Um, in any case, uh, she doesn't earn money as an ordinary person does, and most Buddhist monks and nuns don't. And there's a traditional perception and uh, a conception, an Asian tradition, where the monastic community is called a field of merit, a punya in Sanskrit, kshetra, I don't know what the Pali is, but field of merit. And the idea is that in, in the human world, we all have impulses towards generosity and that giving is a good thing. There's a traditional notion that giving to people who embody a life of renunciation and who also are dedicated to practice that can bring benefits to us, both in terms of uh, their teaching, but also just the fact that they exist as renunciants who are dedicated to freeing themselves from certain things that many of us are wallowing in on a regular basis. That in Buddhist traditions, to have monastic traditions present is a blessing on multiple levels. Not to say that they don't move into the directions of corruption and oppression on occasions in every Buddhist culture. They do. They're human beings. They have problems. But the idea is that to support these communities actually helps them and helps us through the support and that, moreover, generosity, which the term dana means, dana, is not just a matter of sort of picking up brownie points or getting good karma. That it, if it is a matter of bringing out good karma, it's because in being generous, we we touch on those motivations within ourselves, which are very genuine and pure. That is, when we give to people whom we care about, when we give to causes that we care about, when we give to monastics who can only depend upon us for their life. 
she talks about her conviction in the practice and that keeping her as a monastic. But sometimes when I think about being monastic, I think about where in the heck would I get my Reuben board? Do you know what I mean? She just trusts. Do you know what I mean? And sure, there may be some difficulties on occasion, but there's a remarkable way in which communities sustain her out of the generosity of their hearts. And she doesn't have deep needs. She doesn't drive a car. She doesn't have a big house. You know what I mean? Her needs are simple. But I just want to express here the importance, not only in a traditional context, but more so, I think, in American context, where people are not used to giving. Although she can tell, but not tonight, um, wonderful stories about standing with her alms bowl in Manitou uh, and people coming up and saying, what is it you need? Are you gluten intolerant or anything like that? I'll come back with food soon. Do you know? And, and people do respond in a remarkable way. And so w- w- without pretending that just because someone is a monastic, they are a perfected human being, if you can get a glimmer of the kind of dedication that someone like Amma has and some of the fruits that she brings to the practice, from the practice that are brought into the community, then it becomes clear that there are good reasons to give, very good reasons that support her, that support our community, and that pour water on the seeds of generosity and kindness and good intention in ourselves that help nurture within us the same kinds of causes that she's concerned with nurturing in herself, the causes towards goodness and towards freedom. So there's tremendous mutual benefit in a world where lay people support monastics. They each give to one another in great ways. And Alma is dedicated to trying to create here with the help of many people, and I actually owe her an essay on this topic that she's asked me to write, my vision of what is a new Western model for the way in which lay communities and monastic communities work together. I've yet to articulate it. But I say that as a reason just to encourage you to, to, to be generous. And not, I don't mean just this evening, but in general, if you can think about uh, ways in which you might be able to support her in terms of not just money, but also she needs uh, help with food. She doesn't drive around and shop. People donate food to her. And um, I got the donation today of a lawnmower and a weed whacker. This weekend I'm going to come out and fix your lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so things like that. So uh, a call for, for Donna. Do you wish to add anything before we um, disperse? Just in terms of the way the funds are working, the funds David and I will split. But I think what he's talking about is a is a larger context, which yeah. is, is that my whole life is dependent on support that comes from a, from people offering various things, you know. So, and at the moment, the the ground crew that's supporting is thin. So, if people have opportunity or willingness to help with, like, getting me to buses or picking me up from airports or things like that, all of that kind of stuff is needed and very, very deeply appreciated. So, there's a sheet that's on the back that talks about some of the larger context of this. And, 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 you know, David and I have talked about it a lot. Um, you know, monastics, Buddhist monastics in this world are, are slightly extraterrestrial. And so there's a large educational process that's needed in order for people to get a feeling that, well, maybe they're not such a bad thing. In fact, they might even be a really good thing, you know. But if they're a really good thing, then you kind of have to see that they can live. <laughs> And that's not just for them. It's because you want to be in a world where there are people doing things like that. It only happens in one way. So the the piece of paper back there that I I imagine you wrote talks about a profound interdependence. And it's actually a theme that the Buddha in in the early texts brings out again and again. The interdependence of 
giving and taking that happens between a monastic community and a lay community. There's one last thing I was going to say, but now I've forgotten what it is. So when she said that we split the dana, um, we do, but Bodhi Mind Center gets my half. My I don't take money for what I do here. It all goes to our community to buy cushions and to bring people into town to do stuff like that. And her website is awakeningtruth.org, if you don't know that. And you can get uh, emails from her. So thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.